Good afternoon. I'm Leon Davis, and it has been a unique day trying to get this show on the road. And I appreciate everybody's patience on this uh, as we work through. Uh, the normal way that we were able to run, I normally run the show, wasn't working, so we had to uh, fall to back a plan, plan B. And so at least we're on the air, and I want to thank um, my guest, uh, Miss Wendy Isaac Bergen, for joining us today. Thank you, Leon. Thank you. So glad to be here. It's a pleasure. So it's going to be um, a little um, uh, not the visual panacea that I've created before, but we will get the information out uh, and we'll have the, the show. So thank you, everybody, for uh, their patience. Um, one of the reasons that I, I, I wanted to invite you on the show, and I would have shown your book, but as I, as I said, things aren't working in the way they should. So, um, so tell us a little bit about your book. Well, uh, it's called Lessons in the Wild. And um, it's about a um, university professor who is also, he's a violinist. He teaches in a music department. And um, it has to do with, he moves from the city to the country thinking he's going to move from the dangers of the city to the peace of the country. And he, he's uh, vastly mistaken. He has all kinds of problems first with just uh, the house and everything that, that he has, but later it, his problems become professional, uh, personal, financial. He, he faces adversity in every aspect of his life. And so lessons, so it, it, some ways it parallels my own story because I am a universe. I was a university professor for 22 years, and I moved from the city to the country, um, and I had all sorts of difficulties. So, lessons in the wild is really about some of the things I learned uh, through my own struggles. The wild, not the wild being sort of the country, you know, out in the wild, but it also has means the times and places and ways that we struggle as human beings and how we, how we learn from that, how that doesn't overcome us. Great. Okay. And so as, um, I, my guess is that everyone's experience with writing a book is different. Uh, this wasn't your first book. So you no, have two other books. That's yes, your third. Yeah. So yeah. did the process uh, get easier for you? Was it the same process? Well, it got a little easier. I, I have to say the very first book, I, it must have taken me eight years because I was working full time, had a full time job. I was a single mother and I was playing the opera at night. So I didn't have a whole lot of time except in the summers. Um, but it was also just the process of how do you how do you write a book? I mean, that was so the first book took about eight years. The second book was about two years to write. So it got it got better in that way. But I have to say that the experience each time is kind of unique. Um, with the first two books, I knew where I wanted to begin. And I knew where I wanted to go. I just didn't know how I was going to get there, you know, what the middle was going to be like. So that was sort of like a discovery. Um, but this particular book, it was more like I, 
I knew what I wanted to say, but I wasn't quite sure how it, it was going to develop uh, as a book. It, it's, it was more like, I'm going to just put stuff down. I'm going to write down things, my experience, some experiences, some points I want to make. And I didn't know quite where it was. I usually know where it's going. I didn't know where this one was going. Oh, okay. So I don't do an outline. Some Some writers, you know, they're more i guess organized than i am my mine's sort of intuitive writing okay. and um like a character may take they sort of take on a life of the, lives of their own so that suddenly this character wants to say this or do that and it's almost like they're people you're just conveying what they have to say <laughs> they come alive okay and so um how long did it take you to write this uh this this final book um, it probably was about two and two and a half years. Um, I thought it was going to go really quickly, and um, it, I have to also I should also say in the process of writing that it is for me it's very slow. It almost like layers. I sort of get the first draft down, and that's really the mostly the plot and who the characters are. Then I go back, and so the character is in this room. Well, what does the room look like? What is what is he smelling? What is the the light like? You know, I sort of add details, so it, it's sort of layered. And then I then I think, well, um, what would he say or do in this situation? And and I expand on that. So it's, I guess it's a at least six six drafts of going through the whole book and revising and then there's always last minute revisions where suddenly you you get inspired i said oh i should have said this <laughs> or i could say i could do this better you know sure so those are last minute things so now um uh, choice of publisher you chose not to self-publish um, was that, go ahead. Well, um, I chose, I chose, I looked at some publishers online and, um, I, this particular publisher, its name is Dart Frog, kind of an odd name, but Dart Frog. And they, they are kind of a hybrid publisher. So they do, they first have to approve your manuscript, um, and for this particular program, they're pretty particular about which ones they approve. So they, I was very delighted they approved the manuscript, and then it goes through a process of uh, editing and things like that. Mm. So could you um, describe how the, the transition from the uh, urban environment to the rural or to the country, what type of effects that had on you, and how long did it take to adjust? Um, well, it was, uh, there were, there are a lot of things that, because of the way I did it, um, I bought land. I'm talking about myself personally. Mm -hmm. I'm not the character. I bought land, although he does a similar thing because I knew, I knew exactly how this worked. I bought, um, three and a half acres of land and it was undeveloped land. Then I had a guy come in and um, 
it was very thickly wooded. So he came, I asked him to just take down the brush and leave the big trees. And when he did that, the property was transformed. It, it had, uh, there was a big slope that I didn't even know was there because you couldn't see it because of all the trees. Mm-hmm. And then um, I didn't have a whole lot of money. So um, I was thinking I can build a house, but that's extremely expensive. So I bought a house that was going to be demolished in the city of Houston. Hmm. And they sold it off the property. They and but I, I had to move it, and so I moved it about ninety miles out to the country. And um, one of the first, and so they had to take the roof off because they go under overpasses. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that happened that was um, they were going to put the roof back on, but there came. I wasn't on the property at the time. The workman told me there was a tremendous thunderstorm that came up. And they were on the roof, and uh, the contractor said it was like terrible lightning and thunder, and the rain was coming sideways. And um, the guy that was doing the roofing had actually to turn on his his headlights in his truck so they could even see what they were doing. But he got too dangerous, so they got down. So he called me uh, a, few, a day or two later, and he said, you need to come on out here to the house. Um, so I said... Uh, he said, we got a problem. I said, okay. So I went out to the house and I, he said, um, the roof felt, we had this terrible thunderstorm and we didn't, we got the tarps up, but they blew off and the ceiling caved in. I said, in what room? He said, in all of them. (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of thing, that kind of thing, you know, it's like, (laughs) I walked in and the sheetrock and, um, old insulation was all the floor looked like a like a demolition in progress it was terrible so those sorts of things you know that you don't expect all kinds of things happen did you have any insurance to cover that no because um i couldn't even get a loan to do this because the bank wouldn't give you money on a house that was going to be moved if the house had been in place Right. right so the there was the insurance, the mover had insurance so that if anything happened in the move, it would have been covered, but nope, just had to pay for it. Wow. So, um, the, the, the thing I'm saving for last is, okay. is your, your, your life as an educator. And there are a okay. couple of things that are, uh, specifically that, um, intri- intrigued me. Um, but let me, um, uh, ask you about your life in the symphony playing music okay um well i was um as a i was a music professor but um i also i'm a flute professional flutist and mm. i've been playing in a, a opera orchestra in houston since 2001 and um they do four productions a year um and it's over the course of three weekends. Um, so it's, it, it used to be, it's a little, it's less now because of the virus and all that, but it used to be 44 services a year, meaning I would go in and play 44 times, re, either rehearsal or performances 44 times a year. But it's something that I just love because I love music and I love language and opera 
combines them both. The other thing about opera that's cool for the, uh, somebody in the orchestra is if you're in a symphony, you know, you're up there on the stage and everybody's looking at you. But if you're playing in an opera orchestra, you're, you're either in a pit where they can't see you. In our particular setup, we're over to the side. People can see us, but they're focused on the singers. Mm -hmm. And I, I, adore, I adore good singing. So it's been one of the biggest blessings of my life. I just love it, love playing. And, um, and, and the other thing is, is this particular opera company, it's called Opera in the Heights. The Heights is an area in Houston. Maybe, I don't know why it's called the Heights. It may be, you know, like four inches above sea level. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But um, anyway, it's Opera in the Heights, and that's where it's located. And it's in a small um, hall that used to be a church. There's a single balcony, and they took out all the pews, and they put in theater seating. So it's very, very intimate only about 300 people, so it doesn't matter where you sit, you know, you're right close to the stage. Um, so anyway, it's been, a, it's been a great joy for me for all these years. So how did you get started in, in, in music? Because of band? Um, well, I, first I played piano when I was real young, and um, I never would practice. So then when I was in fifth grade, they came around these, these instruments, and um, I wanted to play the clarinet. And then they said, you're so small, you, we're going to give you the flute. So I said, oh, okay. So then I had to talk my mother into buying me a flute, because she said, why should I buy you a flute? You didn't practice the piano. I said, I had to beg, beg, beg. So finally she bought me a, a used flute, and that's where it started. In fifth grade, I went through band. And when I got to college, I was really torn between being a music major and an English major because I've been an avid reader my entire life since I was in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I chose, uh, I chose music, uh, and then, so I had a, like a career in music, and then years later when I did a doctorate, I had to write these papers, and I remembered how much I loved to write. Uh, and so that's when I started to write, uh, I wrote a couple of short stories at that point. But, so I, I was a music major, and I got a graduate degree, and I studied a little bit in New York City, and I played in some smaller orchestras there. And I also, um, at one point in my life, lived in Stockholm, Sweden, and I played in orchestras there and did some recordings for the Swedish National Radio. Um, so it's been a lifelong love and profession. Very interesting. So now, uh, are you still with the HBCU? No, I'm not. I was there for 22 years. Oh. Um, I, I retired uh, there in, in August of 2017. And what did you teach there again? I was, uh, I taught flute. I directed the orchestra. And, and I taught music theory classes. Oh, theory. <laughs> yeah. 
That's exactly I, what the students say. <laughs> when I was younger, I wanted to be a musician, so I thought, and then I, I was doing okay until it got to piano in theory, and then I'm, I lost it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> my mind grasp it for some reason. There, well, I had the same, the same thing with some of my, my students. Some of them were fine, and others it was like, you know, the gateway to purgatory or something. They just, yeah, they couldn't. I, and I, head, but but when it comes to actually uh, putting it on paper, and that's where it kind of fell apart for me. What did you play? Saxophone. Saxophone. I can still play it, but like I said, uh, and I can read a little bit, I don't do it much now, but the theory part is what gave me the biggest challenge. And I think it's because it's math and I didn't have a real mathematic brain. It's true. There is a lot of math in theory, the mm -hmm. making the intervals and the numbers. It's, it's uh, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Fifths, sevenths, ninths, then they go up to the... Correct. All that. I'm like... Okay, what is all of this? <laughs> <laughs> well, Warren, if we take about 30 minutes, I'll have you on a new career. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> okay. I'm not ready to give it up yet. Okay. So what was, what, um, I didn't, I didn't attend an HBCU. And uh, some of the turmoil surrounding teaching and race uh, started bubbling up over the last four or five years. Yeah. Um, what was your experiences um, in that environment? Well, first of all, um, this is a true story. I didn't know the school was an HBCU when I went there. I, um, I needed a job. I had an interim job at the University of Houston that I knew was going to end. And I was supporting a, um, I have a son. And so I knew I had to have some income. So a friend of mine had gotten his uh, uh, teaching certification at a school called Prairie View A&M University, which I had never heard of. So I just thought, well, wait, there's a university. So I looked it up in the phone book. I sent them a letter and a resume and they, it was serendipitous. They were looking for a flute teacher and they immediately, you know, answered me. So I went out there for an interview and an audition because Prairie View A&M, I thought it was just one of the satellites of Texas A&M, like Texas A&M at Corpus Christi or you know, wherever. And so when I went out there, I noticed it's a beautiful campus. And, but I noticed there were a lot of black students. And so when I went in the building um, and went up to the music office, um, the head of the department was a black man. And, but they said, uh, your accompanist will be here in just a minute. And they told me his name. It was this very Irish sounding name. I said, well, there's an Irish person will show up. And so this door opens and this, this very kind of portly, jolly black man comes in. And, and I, at that point I thought, okay, wait a minute, this must be a black university. And I, I just had no idea. And because, you know, I grew up in Louisiana and there's Grambling, there's Southern University. I knew of them, but I just didn't 
expect that. So anyway, so I did the audition and I was just praying that I would get the job. Um, it didn't matter to me one way or the other. I just was, it surprised me. But then when I started working there, it honestly, it was the first time I think I've ever been, the faculty was about 15 people and there were three white people, one of them being me, uh, on the faculty. It was the first time I was ever the, the minority, in the minority in a group like that, you know, and I, it made me realize you feel a little bit conspicuous. And I, it made me realize, you know, I've been in a lot of meetings and a lot of groups where there was one or two black people, but everybody else was white. Or maybe one Asian person. And it made me realize, you know, they they probably feel a little conspicuous too sometimes. But that was just, that was just at the beginning because uh -huh. um, the faculty there, the overall faculty of the university is very diverse. I mean, they have people from all countries, Russians, Asians, in Indians from India, Hispanics, white people, black people from, you know, not only from America, but from other countries. So that was very diverse. The student body is about 83 or 84% black. There were white students, there were Hispanic students and so on, but predominantly there were black students. Um, so what I found is that the faculty had a very strong desire and a very strong drive to improve the quality of education of these students. And, it, and also because it's a music school, improve their performance on their instruments, their singing or whatever. And um, we work together as a group very well. I mean, you know, in any group, you're going to have squabbles and differences of opinion now and again. But generally, we were unified in our desire to do the best we could for these students. Um, and I saw over 22 years, I saw that standard of performance rise very high. Um, so we had, we did well, I think, as a group. Um, one of the things when I went there was that it's very, uh, the music department is very heavily oriented toward the marching band. That's a big thing. And those show bands, I had, we had white students who came to Prairie View because they loved show bands and they wanted to see how, how they put those together, you know, and to, to learn about them and play in them. Um, but I wanted the students to also have an opportunity to play in an orchestra, and we didn't have an orchestra. So um, after heaps of paperwork, I got a, a, an approval from the dean. Um, I created an orchestra there, and um, that, was, that was a whole lot of work. But I was very gratified because the kids loved it, and they, they were also, we were able to bring in some um, violin string players that um, were very, very good students in addition to being good musicians. And, and that's of, often the case, by the way, with kids in band and orchestra in lower schools, is that those are often going to be some of your better students in the school. And so when you re recruit those people to the university, you're, you're recruiting a, a type of student that 
knows generally knows how to study and will generally go the course and get their degree. Mm. So um, another thing that I have to say, you can stop me if I'm talking too much, but not at all. Um, the university is in a rural setting, um, and around it are a lot of white communities. Now there there was a kind of a I guess the word would be distrust between the school and the community to some degree. Um, so one of the things that I did was I, at the church where I go in, in um, Brenham, Texas, Brenham is predominantly white community. Um, the choir needed some, and the music department needed some extra players. So I said, well, then they were getting them from a local junior college. And I said, well, wait a minute. What about the Prairie View students? You know, they, that's a two-year university and they, those kids are here and then they're gone. But Prairie View is a four-year university and those kids will be with us longer. So I created a program where they would come to the church and they were paid. So it was internships that they had. And um, I actually got faculty ambassador award for that because it was bringing them into the white community and the church the people of the church loved those kids they supported them they helped them in every way that they could and the kids thrived in that environment so i was very pleased with that as far as you know race relations that was a, that was a very positive uh, experience for them and for for the community so was so. this church, I'm assuming, predominantly white? Yes. Were they older, younger, or a mixture? Um, the, there are probably more older people there. There are some families, but it's uh, Brenham tends to be kind of a retirement community. That's not why I moved there, but um, mm -hmm. it's uh, not too far from Houston. So a lot of Houstonians will have second homes. In, it's a kind of picturesque area so um and so it's about how far from houston prairie view is about 45 minutes northwest okay it's in a, in a rural community that there is a town called prairie view but the town is just really like a little village mm -hmm. it's mostly the university right right and so when the students leave Prairie View University, where do they typically go? Do they go back home or they do they get jobs in uh, universities where they can continue or to study or teach? Um, I don't know percentages, but I know a lot of them go to graduate school. Um, many of them get jobs um, it, from the music department. Many of them become band directors, choir directors. Um, one of my students who was very self-motivated, she went from Prairie View to Johns Hopkins, uh, the Peabody Conservatory. And she got a degree there in flute, and then she got a jazz degree, and now she teaches in the preparatory division of, of the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. She's made her home in Baltimore. Um, some of them go into the military, but they go into the bands. 
I have, there's at least three or four of them that, that have done that route. Um, some, so, so those that, those that graduate, I think they do pretty well. So, um, is college the only level of teaching, only level that the grades that you've taught? Did you teach any of the lower grades? Um, yes. When I lived in New York for eight years and for four years, I taught in the Catholic schools in the Diocese of Brooklyn, um, kindergarten through eighth grade. Uh, it was just general music. So I did that. And I have to say, um, recently I volunteered in the local elementary school in there. They have a reading and writing program for kindergartners and first graders. I know I worked with first graders and I was, it was kind of an eye-opening experience because let me say this at the university level, um, they have found recently in the last, I don't know how many years, it's been a lot of years, probably 20 years that, that students coming in have difficulty in writing coherently and well and spelling. And so the mandate to, to the faculty is make them write, make them write. So we made them write. And let me tell you, I have, I graded so many papers <laughs> and I saw that there were these big problems with, with their writing, not, not across the board. Every now and then there, there were some students that could write very well, but more students could not. And so the, when I went and did this, internship or not internship mentor I was a mentor for this reading and writing program I just I think I discovered why because the supervising teacher they as part of, they were reading we were reading with them doing word games and also they were having to write a sentence or two and the teacher said don't correct their spelling and you know, just make sure there's a period at the end of the sentence and a capital letter at the beginning of the sentence and don't necessarily collect, uh, correct their grammar. And I thought, what? This is, you know, in anything that you teach, if you're going to teach a kid to hit a ball, you try to teach him right from the very beginning, don't you? Yeah. You teach him right from the very beginning and we're letting them learn it wrong from the very beginning. And I don't know exactly what the philosophy behind that is, unless it's don't correct them because that might hurt their feelings. But I'd rather, I mean, you can correct a child in a loving way that doesn't hurt their feelings, but puts them on the right track. So I think they think that this spelling problems and grammar problems will get fixed later on. But Having been at the top of the food chain at the university, it doesn't get fixed. Right. I, yeah, I know that. If you look at Facebook or social media, you can tell who, who got it right early and who never <laughs> got corrected. Yeah, and I think that's a real big mistake, you know, and I had no power to say anything except I secretly corrected my, <laughs> my student every mm -hmm. now and then. Yeah, you did the best you could with, with what you had. Yeah. Yeah. So another interesting thing about Prairie View that I have to say is that I just looked up the statistics today of the male to female and it's like 60 percent women and 
40% male. But in the music classes, very interesting, it was uh, predominantly male in the music classes. You would not think that. Right. But I, I, there were times when I had a theory class and it was all men and me. Mm. It was all guys. Another thing I would like to say about the HBCU that I found different, because um, at the same time I was teaching at Prairie View, at the beginning, I was also teaching at the University of Houston downtown and Blinn College and Lee College. Uh, one was in Baytown and one was in Brenham. So I was doing this big circuit of, uh, but it was the only HBCU. Um, but one of the th one of the things I noticed about it was that they are a real community of faith. The HBCU they are not afraid, and like in the choir concerts, there were very a lot of sacred songs and things like that, and you know they I just I liked that. I was I was glad of that, and I. Um, and I found it a difference from the other universities were a little more sec secular, but this was more openly a community of faith. And I thought that was good. And it's also in the South, too. I think that's a factor. Probably. Yeah. So one of the, the, the things that stood out when I was looking at your, uh, so I, I got some information about um, you as a potential uh, guest on the show. And one of the things that they mentioned were um, you are not a proponent of electronics or digital aids in the classroom. Is that correct? Um, not exactly. I'm, it's not that I'm not. It's just that I, I, I see that there are... Um, in the classroom, it opens up the world to the classroom. You can be in this little rural environment and you can tune into a concert in Berlin or in New York, you know, on the, cause we had, we had the computers in the classroom and we could watch. And we, we had all of the videos on YouTube. That is marvelous and it makes research so much easier. I mean, I had to go to the library and find the book and, and all of this stuff, whereas now, you know, it's so fast and so easy, but so yes, it's, it's wonderful in certain ways, but what I don't like about technology is, um, let's, you know, I mentioned the writing of the papers. Well, it makes it very easy if you're having difficulty writing to plagiarize. It makes it, and this is not just a prairie view. This is everywhere they were doing the kids were doing this it's very easy to cut and paste another author's work into your paper and not cite the source i said you can do that but you have to give a footnote or you have to say this comes from so and so and sometimes they didn't know that but sometimes they were trying to get away with it and it was so easy to detect because if you have a poorly written paper and you suddenly find this stellar paragraph, you know, in the midst that's beautifully written, it's like, oh, come on, you did not write that. So, so that was one thing. The other thing is, is their focus and concentration is not as strong as it should be. Because when you have this 
fascinating device called a cell phone that has this little and everything's instant on it you know mm-hmm. they would take a picture if i was writing on the board they would take a can, dr bergen can i take a picture of the board i said sure they take a picture rather than writing notes well if you write notes even if you're typing it onto in a laptop right. that physical act of writing makes you remember but you know if you just take a picture of something you put you put it down you don't remember a thing right. nope. you know so that that i didn't like and it's isolating in that for example i took the flute i had a flute ensemble of about eight kids and we were going to go play a concert in mississippi and so I had to drive them. I was driving this van to Mississippi, and I was thinking beforehand, I said, oh, man, this is going to be so loud and noisy. And in that van with all, all these kids behind me, it was dead silent because they're sitting elbow to elbow, right. and they're each one in their phones. They're not interacting with each other. You know, it's so different. From when I was growing up, we would have been loud and noisy and laughing and joking and all this stuff. That's what I was expecting, but I, I'm behind the times, I guess. Um, so that, and I just think in general they they don't know they don't know how to study. So I think it has wonderful technology has gives you wonderful advantages, but it doesn't solve everything, and it's 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 really hurt them in terms of their uh, studying, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, that was my, my con- so technology has kind of um, made people feel that they can replace uh, efforts. So, so it's, it's it's easy to look things up. So when we had used to have to find a library and um, check out or you know go through several books to find information, mm-hmm. we can check several multiple sources with one search. So exactly. So people can um, instead of looking beyond the initial search, they'll just pull what they need from the first two or three sources that they come across without checking to see if the source is reliable, checking to see mm-hmm. if the information checks out from between multiple sources. So That's they, right. so they don't, it is, it is starting to replace effort. Mm-hmm. So that You're was right. One, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I, I entirely agree. It, everything is so easy that and and the other thing is is they have to if there's something that like music theory that they they they're struggling with they're completely frustrated because it's not easy mm-hmm. you can't look it up on the phone you know you can't if if their usual easy access uh phone thing doesn't work they don't know they don't know what to do and they don't they don't expend the effort they don't take the time and the effort it's just like they shrug it off and it's it's a it's too bad yeah i agree so also one of the things that um um, that i noticed was and and i know that this is a subject that many people have approached um but the lack of 
commitment by the community to fund the appropriate level of education needed at each level. So in other words, investing in materials, providing for uh, things that are needed in the classroom. Um, and so you, um, I think, mentioned that uh, money was a significant hurdle. Yes. Um, let me take the orchestra for an example. Um, the well, they they fund the marching band. The marching band gets all. They get the the bulk of the funding. So mm -hmm. the choir didn't get very much funding, and then the orchestra was down there below the choir. So I was, you know, trying to get money, and then I thought, well, and I wasn't very successful. So I thought, well, I'm going to show them. I'm going to make a three-year uh, plan of give me this much money and then for year one and then I'll recruit this m many people and then give me more money for year two and then year three. And I tried to show them that the recruiting of orchestra students could be as valuable as the recruiting of, well, it wouldn't have been as many of as the marching band. And um, I wasn't very successful with that. Um, I mean, I tried, so I, so I think, but I think, you know, in general, and this is at every university and really at every level, the, the STEM classes, science, technology, engineering, and math, they get the money, right? They get the money. And in the university level, those professors get paid more than the arts. Mm -hmm. So currently in our society, those are valued more. And so they, that's part of why they get more money. And you, you can, you also know, like, if you look at lower levels, what, what programs get cut first? The arts, mm -hmm. music programs, you know, the art programs, those are not considered essential. And, and I beg to differ. I think for human beings, those are essential. The arts are essential. Um, they make our lives better and you know sometimes science does does great things for us and sometimes it gets us in into trouble sure. <laughs> you know? so one of, one of the questions I, I did have is I don't know um, what level of interaction that you had with companies influencing decisions about education did you have any kind of uh, interaction with that? Not, not really. Um, the Texas legislature um, has a big hand in just general funding mm -hmm. of universities. And um, I didn't have much to do with that, but I know that uh, the president of the university would go to when the legislature was in session and he would you know, advocate for the university as a whole, um, not necessarily for the arts, but but for the university as a whole. Um, so I didn't have anything to do really with businesses. Um, mm -hmm. 
that did that would fund things. Yeah. So, and and the and the reason um, I w- wanted to question that was, um, in recent years, there are a lot of instances where um, companies are buying uh, technology for classes and. Uh, they're branding that with the company's information, and we've got uh, grade schools teaching um, uh, business applications like spreadsheets and um, uh, word processing to grade school students uh, as a form of education when we've eliminated classes like shop and home ec and music. And mm-hmm. So my concern here is, is that we're creating, there's an attempt to create a um, class of workers rather than educate students about things that they need to learn to be better citizens overall. Yeah, I think think that's a very, very good point. And, And that's why I say we need the arts because it expands us it expands our horizons and it's not we're not just workers like ants or units in a you know we're just we're not numbers we're human beings and the quality of life uh is diminished when you take away the things that make life beautiful and wonderful and uh so that's a very good point leon yeah, you you know that old saying, music soothes the savage beast or something to that effect. I think the arts and music calm us down. They give us a sense of being grounded, something that's inside of us, you know. And w- once we connect with those feelings, those musics, those vibrations, which is what music is, you know, it, it has a calming effect on us. It does, yeah. So, it, it, oh, go ahead. It's it's an uh, it can be something that lifts us up, inspires us. Mm-hmm. Um, music um, and also words, you know. Words as well. Words as well. They they have music has power. Mm-hmm. It has real power, and so do words. The words have the power to uplift, or they have the power to destroy. I mean, think of children you know may have known who have had to endure verbal and psychological abuse yeah they can have a very negative power and at the on the other hand if someone says something to you that um they might just make a state like i had a teacher in new york that says i was worried about making a career as a professional musician and this teacher said to me after I'd worked with him before, I, I said, I don't know if I'll ever, you know, get a job or what will I do? And he says, there's going to be a place for you. You'll find there, there will be a place for you. And it's like that was like this lifeline. I held on to that through dark times. He mm-hmm. said there was going to be a place for me. And eventually there was. So, you know, it it's very important. Important, and we should be mindful, especially if, as teachers, um, what we say to a student. 
you never know, you know, something that you say may, may just be like that lifeline to me, or, you know, you could say something, just throw out some kind of mean remark and it could crush someone because you're an authority figure and they're looking up to you. And, um, so, so yeah. So are you still an instructor? Um, I have, a, I have some private students um, not right now because of COVID. I haven't, you know, been face to face with anybody. Um, but and I, I'm not doing the mentoring thing for the first graders either because they stopped that because of COVID. Um, but um, so it's on in a limited way. Okay. Is there um, is there a fourth and a fifth book in in store? <laughs> Well, there's a fourth one. Um, my second book um, was called The Threshold of Eden. And um, I'm going to write a sequel. I am writing a sequel to that right right now. It's sort of slow. Go I've got about 100 pages. It's slow going. And it's just the first draft. So talk to me in two years. <laughs> it takes me that long. How do you know when the book is finished? How do you know when to close it and you write the end? Oh, that's a process. Um, it's sometimes it's hard to know. Sometimes you get to a point where you think it's finished. What I usually do is I put it down mm -hmm. and just go away. Just forget about it for a couple of weeks and then I'll come back or even longer and then I'll come back and reread it. Um, it's once you're in process, it's always in your mind. It's, it's going through your mind all the time, uh, your characters and your plot and all that. But there, there does come a point where you just say, this is it. I, and, and another thing I have to say is that when you get through with it, you have no idea what effect it'll have on other people because you're so inundated with it it's not fresh to you you know it's not mm -hmm. fresh anymore so there have been times when people have said oh i just had to keep turning the pages and i go you did <laughs> <laughs> i was very i was very pleased <laughs> but because i knew what was going to happen you know it's right um, yeah so did did you ever get to the end or near the end and then you think Oh, something back there towards the middle just wasn't right. Go back and make some edits or some changes. Yes, you do. Yes, I have. Um, or, or once this last uh, book, Lessons in the Wild, um, I got to the end of the book and I said, you know, it lacks something. And then I had a conversation with a friend of mine and... Um, not about the book at all. It was about something that was going on in her life. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. I'm going to put, I, so I, I made a subplot and I had to go, it, it mm. didn't take too much, but I had to go all the way back through the book and sort of add in this little thing that was going to happen. And it was kind of a mystery mm. and it, it gets revealed right at the end, but it made the book so much better, but it was worth the, the effort. Okay. So did you tell them <laughs> the person? I did. did. I told her. I said, you know, because we had this conversation, um, it made me think about that in the book, 
to, to add something. It, it wasn't her, but it was something similar, this, the topic mm. we were talking about. It actually had to do with witchcraft and sorcery mm. um, we were talking about. And so I added that into the book. So was this person into witchcraft and sorcery? No, she was having a series of accidents that um, she kept re-injuring herself in the same way after, over a period of several months. And she mm -hmm. said, I wonder if there's like a curse on me. <laughs> and um, so I did some reading about it. You know, there we I believe in blessings. Mm -hmm. Well, they have power to help us. Well, curses, like I was telling you, the power of words, right? Someone can make a, a curse against someone else and it ha can have an effect. I mean, people that live in, um, for example, Haiti, mm -hmm. uh, Africa, Brazil, they're well aware of the power of witchcraft and sorcery, sure. that it, it does have an effect. So, um, so anyway, I added this little subplot into the book, and um, and it, it was very effective. Okay. Because of that conversation. So you've taken on a number of challenges in your life. What is there a new challenge coming forward, or are you just gonna? <laughs> Leon, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I, at, at this point, I, I don't know. I don't think so, but one never knows. Um, yeah, I've been in, I've made some big jumps in my life from one place to another, mm -hmm. one country to another, and then raising my son. Um, so, so, not yet, not right now. Okay. How often do you play your flute? Oh, that's, um, I play every day. Okay. No, it's been harder. It's harder? It's been harder during this, because, um, you know, the, the pandemic affected all arts organizations. We, the opera company didn't play. <laughs> yeah. So when I have an opera score that I have to play, it, you know, I have something in front of me that I, a goal that I'm working toward, but when there's no no performances over a course of a year, it's it's it takes a lot of discipline to just you know keep playing every day so you keep your keep your chops up. Exactly. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. Okay. Alrighty. So how many do you have? What? How many flutes do you actually own? Um, I have my best flute, and then I have a backup flute that's not not quite as good as that one i actually had to play it recently because we did some out the opera company finally did some performances at the end of april but because of covid and everything they chose an outdoor venue it was out it was actually a rock venue in houston that's a big raised stage but it was everything was outdoors the rehearsals were outdoors so i used my uh second flute for that and i have a piccolo and I also have several different types of recorders, the wooden recorders. Interesting. 
The book is Lessons in the Wild by Wendy Isaac Bergen. If you'd like to, I, in fact, I would like for you to share with uh, us, Ms. Bergen, or uh, anyone listening, how they could uh, get a hold of you and how they can get your book. Well, the book is on Amazon, um, and I have a website that is my full name, wendyisaacbergen.com. Um, I also have a web, a one a web page or a page on Amazon. Um, and then there's another company, bookshop.org. They sell the books. But, you know, actually, you can go into any local bookstore and uh, ask them to order the book, and they'll, they'll do it for you. But you can order it outright on Amazon. Um, and also, if you'd like to contact me, you can contact me through my website. There's a contact page. Well, thank you so very much for joining us this afternoon. I really appreciate you and uh, appreciate your patience as we try to get things up and running. And uh, we look forward to, in two years, I will try to check back to you, with you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Leon. You're quite welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Warren. My pleasure. It was a great pleasure. This episode of Altitude Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and Twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares and comments so please like share and comment on this and other episodes of altitude adjustment because it matters and as always look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you